So good evening. Take my glasses off so I can see your faces. These are reading glasses. Wow. So good to see you. (laughs) Also want to let you know that we just laid our eyes on Bart. Um, So he's back in the campus. He's back on campus. Um, He will more than likely not be with us tomorrow, and we're just taking it a day at a time. Uh, his ride is over here, his ride home, so he's kind of stuck until Tuesday. And he's doing better, um, but needs to pay attention to some of those heart things that um, were mentioned. You know, one of those aspects of the body you don't play around with, and you really take it seriously. And Bart is very, how would you describe, very, very feeling a particular way at his not being here, you know, with us and with you. And we're like, handle it, man. Take care of your business. (laughs) We'll be fine. I'm sure the sangha will pivot and adjust. (laughs) So that's the update on Bart. So, um... Tonight, I thought I was, we were planning on it anyway, um, but it seems very apropos to um, bring to you some reflections and understandings in relationship to the hindrances, because we've been hearing a lot about those over the last two days. And one of the things that struck me is how we forget <laughs> that these are hindrances, that it's not some personal failure or some inability to do the practice right. It's actually, in my mind's eye, a reflection that the practice is working marvelously and that we can take the opportunity uh, to engage with these mind states um, that furthers us along or moves us towards uh, freedom. So we're going to spend a little time with the hindrances tonight. A quote from Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield from their Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. The purpose of practice is not to create a special state of mind. That's always temporary. It is to work directly with the most primary elements of our experience. All the aspects of our body-mind to see the way we get trapped by our fears and desires and anger, and to work with them. The hindrances will enrich our lives. They have been called manure for enlightenment. And some teachers speak of them as mind weeds, which we pull up and bury next to the plant for nourishment. Our practice is to use all that arises within us for growth of understanding, compassion, and freedom. The difficulties we encounter in practice become themselves part of the fullness of meditation, a place to learn and open the heart. Working with the hindrances will lead to great insight and understanding. So we're all making a choice to cultivate skillful means. That's partly what has landed us here together for this week. 
So you're already ahead of the eight ball. You've made a decision to come here. When we're not clinging to what we want, life becomes much easier. Although the events of life may be painful to bear at times, we can accept the pain without adding suffering. Rather than demanding that things turn out the way we want them to, we can surrender to life even though it often fails to deliver what we would hope. As a result, we can be at peace with ourselves in the present moment and we can move towards our goals without contraction or constraint. The Buddha's instruction to abandon clinging translates into caring without demanding, loving without imposing conditions, and moving towards our goals without attachment to the outcome. Approaching goals with this attitude or this state of mind allows us to care, to interact, and to take action in our lives, our jobs, in our relationships, and in the greater world, and still have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. Our life becomes based on being in the moment rather than on the outcome of that moment. Being fully present in the moment becomes the most essential value and orientation to one's life. It allows us to be in the world of goals and actions without being defined by it. It is a major step towards liberating the mind. Buddha said, clinging is suffering. Clinging to what you want is like being caught in a vice or a swamp. He also said, one who knows clinging and non-clinging knows all the Dhamma. One of the main impediments to clear seeing and non-clinging is what the Buddha described as the hindrances or nirvarana, not nirvana, (laughs) nirvarana, that cloud the mind and prevent us from knowing the cause of our suffering. So I looked up hindrance um, in the dictionary because this is like as we hear this term and how it's being utilized um, uh, to talk about some of these distinctions in the Dhamma and in Buddhism, there's a lot of energy on this word just from us growing up and hearing it all the time and interacting with it all the time. And it's actually a nice relationship between the noun usage of hindrance and the way it's being used in Buddhist speak. Hindrance, something immaterial that interferes with or delays action or progress. Difficulty, a factor causing trouble in achieving a positive result or tending to produce a negative result. Any condition that makes it difficult to make progress or to achieve an objective. An obstacle that you are expected to overcome. Any obstruction that impedes or is burdensome. Verb, the act of hindering or obstructing or impeding. 
So that kind of describes it. Yeah? That kind of places it squarely in clarity about this phenomena of being hindered or hindering or being obstructed from obtaining, not remembering that this is part of the process of practice and bringing into play all kinds of mind states and opinions, judging, yeah, mainly. The first hindrance is sensual desire or kamachanda, which is the mind simply wanting something pleasurable. The second is ill will or vayapada, in which the mind is filled with dislike. The third, tenamida, is sloth and torpor, in which the mind is either too sleepy or too apathetic to see clearly. The fourth, restlessness and worry, or udahacha kakucha, is when the mind is too anxious to be able to stay steady. The fifth, and considered by many to be the most difficult hindrance, is skeptical doubt, vikicha, in which one lacks the faith in oneself to stay mindful of what is truly true and to act skillfully. Personally, I call doubt the mother of all hindrances because it stops us from ever beginning to get loose of clinging Doubt freezes the mind and undercuts our ability to cope with all the other hindrances. These hindrances can be experienced singularly or multiple hindrances, which is often called a hindrance attack. Anybody familiar with that? (laughs) When the mind isn't obscured by hindrances, attachment doesn't arise. And our mind is willing to just be with what is. One is not caught in wanting anything, wanting to become anything, or wanting to get rid of anything. Undoubtedly, most of us have experienced this free state numerous times in our lives already, but if we are not mindful, if we weren't bringing mindfulness to it when it was occurring, the impact is minimal. Through mindfulness, one feels it's wholesome and are drawn to do the things that encourages its arising more often. In those moments in which our minds are free from hindrances, we are not in a reactive state. We see things more clearly and have access to intuitive wisdom. Although the three types of desires still arise, one is not drawn into them. Kama tanha, or craving for sensual pleasures, bhavatana tanha, or craving for existence, vibhavana tanha, craving for non-existence, and tanha means, or is the Pali for, thirst, desire, longing, greed. These hindrances and desires do not define our existence. They are merely characteristics of our mind states. They are merely characteristics of our mind states, ever-changing as they arise and pass away, 
we can become obsessed with them and delude it. What we all have experienced to varying degrees is that we are hampered in our ability to remain mindful, to develop concentration, and to have clear insight. Even when we have the best of intentions to stay focused and present, these forces can propel us out into states of preoccupation and distracted thinking. The good news is these forces and challenges offer an opportunity for the deepening of practice and development of skill as meditators and are not, quote-unquote, bad distractions or personal failings. It is a part of the path of practice to be mindful of them. These forces can serve us by forming the basis for cultivating awareness and wisdom. It is a necessary progression of practice to investigate the forces of distraction and agitation with the utmost care and honor, for they lay before us the opportunity to break through the cloud of confusion and reactivity our minds frequently dwell in. We must understand their true nature and how they work, as it is much easier to find freedom from something when we know it thoroughly. There's a lot available for you to um, engage with and to find and to integrate and transform here on this retreat and through this practice. And it is my hope that if nothing else, that you leave here in some days that are coming, really being much more kind and less judgmental of yourselves. What this is speaking to is that the hindrances are actually a natural unfolding of part of the process of practice. And, you know, it's really uh, the the visual I have in my mind when I started working with the hindrances um, was actually turning towards it, throwing my arms wide open and saying, come for it. Let's do this. Because it's out of that activity that I have developed the capacity and the capabilities to um, just be with it and not get caught in it. Even, I mean, I told, I told Bart, I said, here we're having a real life example of what we're teaching. Maybe we should be paying attention to this. <laughs> but really, there would have been a time where I'd be like, oh no, Bart, you got it. You know, and I would have been, it would have been about me. Like, I got to give my Dharma talk, and then we got to figure out a way to manage all it is. But fortunately for me, (laughs) I've put in enough time and enough practice and enough effort that I don't get caught most of the time. I do get caught sometimes, but I don't take up residence there anymore. These five hindrances or workings of the mind can hinder our ability to see clearly and our capacity to develop a stable, concentrated mind. A lot of you all were talking about that today, at least in my groups. Sensual desire, the mind wanting something pleasurable, grasping after sense objects. It keeps the mind looking outward, searching after this object or that, in an agitated and unbalanced way. 
Sensual desire can be for food, comfort, physical and sexual experiences, sounds, smells, sights, and other sense pleasures. It is the very nature of sense desires that they can never be satisfied. There is no end to the seeking. Living without wants, wishes, motivations, or aspirations is impossible. However, to approach freedom, we must emphasize skillful desires and distinguish the healthy, useful desires from the unhealthy ones. So you can hear in this, which is a lot about what the practice is, part of what we're in the um, effort of doing is replacing unskillful means with skillful means. It's human nature to have habit. So we want to bring forward the healthy habits and distinguish the unhealthy ones. We become wise about harmful desires and understand that the more we value freedom, and its pleasures, the more likely freedom guides us in deciding which desires or aspirations we allow to guide our lives. Ill will or aversion. The mind is filled with dislike, the condemning mind, anger, fury, resentment, hatred, annoyance, aversion, irritation, vexation, loathing, rage, spite, resistance, avoidance, criticalness, boredom, complaining, grudge, and fearfulness. Ugh, get that off of me. <laughs> but that's, that's kind of intense, like, to hear those words, right? And the subtle manifest, I mean, this is big manifestation, but all of these states have more subtle ways that they settle in our bones, in our minds, in our hearts. And that's one of the opportunities of practice to actually um, excavate Yeah, down to the subtle, so that you can see it. It is the mind that strikes against the object and wants to get rid of it. The mind is burning with desire or burning up. Wisdom is acquired through familiarity, and one of the tasks in mindfulness practice is to become familiar with the hindrances. With ill will, this requires a willingness to shift attention away from whatever we are hostile towards and instead turn it towards the experience of ill will itself. It can be useful to be mindful of it in a non-judgmental and non-reactive way. It can be helpful to hold the ill will in our focus without acting on it or pushing it away, being mindful of how ill will feels physically. Perhaps examine the beliefs that underlie the ill will. How do we believe aversion will be beneficial or justified? What assumption do we believe about how things are supposed to be? What might ill will be covering? Frustrated desire? Fear? Embarrassment? With no aversion to aversion, mindfulness can make us independent of aversion. Sloth and torpor. The mind is sleepy or too apathetic to see clearly. Sluggish, laziness of mind. A mind that is heavy or dull. 
Sloth and torpor can arise from the absence of desire and aversion. The lack of stimulation that accompanies constant desire and aversion can be deflating and even depressing. Sloth and torpor are forces in the mind that drain vitality and limit effort. Sloth manifests as a physical absence of vitality. The body may feel heavy, lethargic, weak. When this hindrance is strong, there is not even enough mindfulness to know we have fallen into it. Sloth and torpor refers to low energy states related to an attitude we are holding. Discouragement, frustration, boredom, indifference, giving up, hopelessness, and resistance are some of the mind states that cause sloth and torpor. Although sloth and torpor may be present, it does not mean energy is not available but just that we are not accessing it. Our evaluations and reactions lead to lethargy. Learning how to mindfully watch our thoughts instead of actively participating in them can effectively stop them from draining our energy. Restlessness and worry. The mind is too anxious to stay steady. Regret, agitation, jumping from one object to another without any mindfulness. A state of over-excitement. Trauma can cause restlessness and worry. Trauma history. Watching too much TV, the internet, our phones, engaging in social media, all can contribute to an increased sense of restlessness. It's not saying not to participate in any of those, but not have them dominate your life, your mind, your heart, your body. It can be useful to cultivate contentment, breathe through the restlessness for calming, Releasing tension or constriction in breathing can be relaxing. The more attention given to breathing, the less attention is available to fuel restlessness and worry. It is important to have enough exercise or movement as best a body can, enough sleep and good nutrition, because the lack thereof can also encourage restlessness. Dissatisfaction, frustrated desire, and pent-up aversion are also common causes of agitation. Being mindful of the cause is helpful and not the agitation itself. When pain is the cause of the restlessness, the pain should be addressed. When thinking is a big part of restlessness, it can be useful to relax the thinking muscle. And lastly, doubt. Skeptical doubt, perplexity, confusion, a lack of faith that one can stay mindful of what is true and to act skillfully. Doubt freezes the mind 
and undercuts our ability to cope with all the other hindrances. Doubt is a string of words in the mind often associated with a subtle feeling of fear and resistance. Have you ever really observed that voice that says, it's too hard, I can't do this, it's the wrong time for this, maybe I should try some other practice? When we become mindful of doubt as a thought process, when we can note doubting, and we do not become involved with the content, a transformation occurs. Doubt becomes the source of awareness. There is much to be learned about the impermanent, ungraspable nature of the mind by watching doubt. We can also learn what it means to be identified and caught up in our moods and mind states. When caught up in a doubt, there is a great, great, great deal of suffering. It feels so personal, not knowing the right direction or where to turn. Doubt arises as a result of thinking about things other than what you can observe happening right here, right now, in the present moment. But in the moment when we feel it, without grasping or pushing it away, our whole mind becomes freer and lighter. Jack Cornfield talks about two aspects of doubt that are especially difficult. One is the inability of the mind to focus on anything. The mind runs all over the place, considering possibilities, and remains indecisive. This is small doubt. We can work with this by coming fully back to the present moment, with as much continuity as we can muster, and a degree of continuity, firmness, and steadiness of mind. Gradually, Confusion will be dispelled. Then there is the great doubt, the deep desire to know our true nature, to know the meaning of love and freedom. Who am I? What is freedom? Searching, searching for the end of suffering. This doubt, however, can be a source of energy and inspiration. The difficulties of doubt can lead to the discovery of the great doubt. The hurt of anger can lead us to a deeper sense of strength and love. An underlying restlessness is a source of spaciousness and peace. With practice, Mindfulness eventually becomes stronger than the power of the hindrances. Choosing to be mindful of a hindrance is a significant move towards being free of it. One of the most significant turning points in practice with the hindrances is when we choose freedom over being hindered. Let's see something. Although there are seven factors, 
four are always paired. Gil Fransdahl suggests that one explanation for this is that the paired items represent closely related physical and mental factors. The first two hindrances are related by being opposite qualities, desire and ill will. They are both forms of wanting, although opposite sides of the same coin. Desire seeks to have something, whereas ill will wants to push something away. In a similar way, the third and fourth hindrances are related by being opposite qualities. They both relate to or involve levels of energy or vitality. Sloth and torpor are low-energy states, while restlessness and worry are high-energy states. The fifth hindrance, doubt, is not specifically connected to any of the others. However, doubt is often entwined with any combination of the other hindrances and can and does cast its influence in many ways on our whole being. When the hindrances are strong, we lose our ability to see clearly. These hindrances cloud our mind and prevent us from knowing the cause of our suffering. Mindfulness practice returns the mind to this free state. In those moments in which the mind is free from hindrances, one is not in a reactive state. One sees things more clearly and have access to intuitive wisdom. Is there a dawning clarity here about the hindrances? Can I hammer it home anymore? When we repeat this process over and over, practice through the years, all types of desire gradually have less impact on our sense of well-being. We become less and less defined by our desires. They simply come and go. Some desires we respond to. Those desires we do not respond to may persist as a presence in the mind, but they don't take over our mind, pull us into a contracted state, put us in a bad mood, or spoil our attitude towards life. If we purify the mind of the hindrances, then the mind is no longer stiff and rigid. It becomes fluid and can be shaped into something beautiful. The hindrances can also be seen as strategies we use when we are challenged or uncomfortable. In psychological terms, defenses. How might we deal with this difficult mind state that obstructs us on our journey on this path? We can recognize them, see them clearly in each moment. That recognition is the most powerful, effective way of overcoming them. Recognition leads to mindfulness. Mindfulness means not clinging, not condemning, and not identifying with the object. Remember 
All the hindrances are impermanent mental factors or thought. States that arise in the mind from conditioning. They arise and they pass away like clouds in the sky. However, when caught in the web of not seeing, we believe they are fixed and permanent. If we are mindful of them when they arise and do not react or identify with them, they pass through the mind without creating any disturbance. Ajahn Sumedho says, letting go is leaving things as they are. It does not mean that we annihilate them or throw them away. He goes on to explain how abandoning works. If we contemplate desires and listen to them, we are actually no longer attaching to them. He likens clinging to holding a clock in your hand for a long period of time until it becomes heavy and your arm begins to ache. If you are told to let go of the clock to relieve your discomfort, you are not being told to throw it away. It's a perfectly good clock one that is easy to travel with and keeps good time. Therefore, the clock is not the problem. Your grasping is. Putting the clock down will relieve your arm from cramping, free up your hand, give you more energy for other things. But it wasn't the clock itself that was causing your suffering, only that you did not know how to put it down. In life, we will inevitably have many goals and they will determine how we spend our time. But there is a distinction between acting according to what one's values are and being attached to the outcome of an action. We don't diminish our commitment to the goal by letting go of grasping to the outcome. So how do we practice abandoning? In addition, one of the best ways is with mindfulness, using mindfulness to clearly see what is true for one right now. You get it? Like mindfulness. Really? That's the, that's, that's the code <laughs> to get in the room. <laughs> mindfulness. <laughs> the first step is to separate desire from attachment to it. Then examine the desire itself and see how it is related to the arising of pleasant or unpleasant feelings. Observe whether the desire is based in the present or if it is linked to the future or the past. Be interested in the energy of the desire and how it propels the mind in various directions. Notice whether any images or words accompany the desire. Is there a little movie running in your head about that outcome? Is the desire an end in itself, a way to entertain yourself, or the result of wanting something you want so that you can be the star of the drama that is your life? Now, start to look for signs indicating that you are caught in clinging. 
Oftentimes, it manifests as tension in the body or as a general feeling of urgency or anxiety, even nausea or headaches. Examine the story that accompanies the clinging to outcome and the drama it creates in the mind. Observe how narrow the mind becomes when it is clinging. Be interested in obsessive and repetitive thought patterns and notice how they drain your energy. Ask yourself if this clinging is suffering or not suffering. Separate the desire itself from the clinging to having the desire fulfilled. Keep practicing and working with it. That's what Harriet Tubman said last night, remember. Keep going. Keep going. Once the mind has made these distinctions, one can begin to note that the awareness of the clinging is separate from the actual clinging. Once we begin to make this distinction with some ease, we can start to invite the mind to let loose of clinging. We must be careful, however, not to fall into aversion by condemning the clinging. Without judging, just silently observe that the clinging is burning the mind and body and invite the mind to let loose of it. You can imagine the letting go as a physical act, like putting down a hot teacup. Imagine ease filling your mind when the clinging is gone. Smile at your resistance to letting go of the clinging and be very sympathetic to feeling the need to cling, being kind and compassionate with yourself. In no way are we supposed to substitute clinging to abandonment for clinging to desire? It is skillful to want the mind to be free. Such a passion is connecting us to our deepest intention to not cause suffering by clinging. But if we start to have aversion to clinging, and start to grasp for non-attachment, we end up falling back into the trap of demanding that this moment be other than it is. Spiritual development through mindfulness allows us to expand or transform desire into love. This is liberation, freedom from suffering around one's desire that the past be different than it was and that the future turn out a certain way. If we are fully present in the sacred now, suffering is transformed into joy. Stay awake. And I don't mean now. (laughs) Don't identify. Practicing mindfulness is easy. 
remembering to do so is difficult. If it's not clear by now, I'll repeat. The hindrances operate in everyone. Their presence is not a personal failing. We humans are born with the mental capacity for the hindrances. It's one of the tickets we purchase for the blessing of taking this ride called life. It is useful and wise to view their occurrences as something to include as part of mindfulness practice and not some personal inability. There are no quick fixes to overcoming the hindrances. Slow and steady wins the race. The more patiently and carefully we bring them into our practice to work with the more probability we have of understanding them. The Buddha taught the Dharma in many different ways. We get a clear sense of his primary teachings through the various summaries he gave. In the Dhammapada, there are two verses in which he encapsulates the teachings of the Buddhas through the ages. The first states, doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Perhaps some of you, especially those of you that have been on retreat before, have heard the story of Mara. This uh, energy on the night of Buddha's awakening comes to him and is the personification of temptation and distraction, coming to him time and time again in an attempt to undo the newly dawned freedom that the Buddha had achieved. Each time Mara arrives, the Buddha simply says, Mara, I see you. After this happening time and time again, Mara relinquishes the notion that the Buddha will be turned around and flees. Thus the importance of awareness, the seeing things clearly, bringing freedom from Mara, being freedom bringing freedom from our own suffering. So my last offering uh, for this evening, and no need to try to remember this. I will post it, and most of you know, I think by now, that all the Dharma talks and Brahma Viharas and instructions are being taped. So you can relax that leaning in. Gil Fransdell offers us a way to take the hindrances into our mindfulness practice, which consists of five different aspects. The acronym for this tool is BELLA, B-E-L-L-A, which translates into English as beautiful. He states that the acronym describes the mind that is revealed when the hindrances are overcome and mindfulness becomes strong. Bella, B, B E. When a hindrance appears, it is useful to first let it be, not acting on it or reacting to it. 
It is the training in staying present for our experience without being in conflict with it. No need to be discouraged, angry, or self-critical when faced with a hindrance. Letting a hindrance be is a practice of finding an inner stability in the face of destabilizing forces. Letting it be involves recognizing and acknowledging the hindrance. The clearer the recognition and mindfulness, the more we pull ourselves out of the web of confusion and non-clear seeing. This brings great freedom. Recognition also ensures our practice stays honest and realistic. Bella E. Examine. This is said to be the most important aspect of our practice with the hindrances. Exploring the hindrances involves recognizing the components. It's physical, energetic, cognitive, and motivational aspects. For example, if we take sense desire and deconstruct it physically, it may be experienced as a leaning forward a tightening of the solar plexus, or a sense of lightness. Energetically, it may involve pressure, a sense of restlessness, or an upsurging of vitality. Emotionally, sense desire may invoke pleasant emotions like delight, excitement, or eagerness. Cognitively, sense desire may involve beliefs and stories we tell ourselves, and motivationally, since desire may come as a strong impulse to act or cling or fix. Learning how hindrances arise, how they are removed, and how they can be prevented from arising requires attention and discernment. The Buddhist word that is translated into hindrances also has the meaning of covering. We can examine what the hindrances are masking. For example, desire can be covering loneliness. Ill will can be covering frustrated desire. Sloth and torpor can be covering fear, restlessness, and worry can be covering wanting and approval. Doubt can be covering a reluctance to commit. Bella. Lesson, L. Lesson, its strength. Relaxing both the body and mind are good ways to lessen the intensity of strong bouts with a hindrance. If a hindrance is overwhelming, lessening its power might require removing yourself from the situations that reinforce it or direct one's attention to something that has a calming effect. Focusing on an antidote to a hindrance can be very helpful as well. For example, cultivating loving kindness can help lessen ill will. Bella, L, let go. Once we understand a hindrance, it can be appropriate to let go of it. For example, letting go of the thinking that perpetuates the hindrance. This ability to let go of the hindrance increases with practice. 
Letting go is like a muscle which grows stronger with practice and time, like a gem for the mind. Bella A. Appreciate. When a hindrance is no longer present, it is useful to take time to experience its absence. To be mindful and present without being hijacked by a hindrance is a joy. Relief that arises when the mind is free of hindrances is a delight. Unhindered attention is a treasure. Bella, be, examine, lesson, let go, appreciate. In closing, I'll say, let the practice release our hearts from fear. Let the quieting of our mind and the clear seeing of the truth release us from confusion and clinging. Let understanding and acceptance of the way things are in this moment flower the fruit of wisdom. Thank you for your listening and your kind, kind attending to Let's just sit for a moment and allow the words to settle. And for this evening, may the benefits of our practice and the unfurling of our effort bring great comfort and well-being to our heart, known as Bart. time for walking and one of us will be back here for the last sit of the evening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.